Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And John, once again, we're rejoined by Tom Strong. Hi, Tom. Hey. Welcome, Tom. Yeah. Thanks for rejoining us. We talked to you for a a full episode already. There's a lot more to talk about in your storied career, but something stood out to me about turning your career into that of a lawyer. Maybe you can mention the incident where you were told, and I forget how old you were, but you were asked to stand up in class, I believe as a, maybe a young teenager, I'm guessing, and to recite a poem that you struggled with. But could you tell that story? Oh, sure. I was in the ninth grade, Stratford School. There were about 20 students in the class, and we had an English class. Miss Tunnell was our English teacher, and she assigned the class to uh, memorize and recite How Do I Love Thee, poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Well, with 20 people, I didn't think there was much of a chance that I'd be called on. And so, you know, I kind of memorized it halfway on the theory that maybe enough to get by. And lo and behold, the very first person she called on to recite this poem was me. So here I go, and I'm struggling to remember the words. And so that meant there were pauses, and then I'd kind of emphasize a word or two as I'd get started again. And when it was all over, Miss Tunnell said, that was very expressive. (laughs) (laughs) I'd apparently paused at the right time and emphasized words at the right time. So there it was. And every year, all the schools that were in Greene County, they had a speech contest at the end of every year. He said, "Uh, Tom, why don't you enter the speech contest? Well, fortunately, the speech contest that year was going to be at Stratford, so I could do it. And I said, sure, I'll do that. She said, well, you're going to be competing against juniors and seniors, so you don't want to do oratory. And you don't want to do these dramatic readings that they have. But I think you could do a humorous reading. So I said, sure, I'll do that. So we picked out one. I think she picked it out. And it was Tom Sawyer whitewashing the fence. That was my humorous reading. So the time came. And um, I performed Tom Sawyer whitewashing the fence. Well, I was a little toe-headed kid. I like Tom Sawyer. And... Um, Virgil Anderson from Drury College was the judge of all these events. And I got an A, the best grade that you can get. And afterward, he said, uh, Tom, he said, that was good. He said, you were Tom Sawyer in that. So, man, oh, man, I was really feeling really good. And in this tournament, I discovered there was something called debate. It was offered at senior high school in Springfield, Missouri. Senior high school was the only high school in Springfield at that time. And it only had the top three grades, 10, 11, and 12. And it had over 500 students in each of those grades. But they offered debate. So I told Miss Tunnell, next year I'm going to go to senior high school in Springfield and take debate. She said, Tom, she said, you'll be lost in that school. You'll be a little fish in a huge pond. Stay here at Stratford. We all know you. We all like you. And you'll get a better education here. 
Well, I didn't think I would be a little fish in any pool. I would go to senior. So I did go to senior. I walked into that huge building, all these kids around me. They all had known each other, of course, so I was lost. But the first thing I did was to find the classroom where debate was going to be held. And my class would be in the afternoon. So I walk into the debate classroom, and there was Miss Annaby Jefferson, a spinster, an ugly, ill-fitting wig, uh, overweight. Uh, she was a very poor speaker. And that first day I said, how in the world can she teach me how to debate when she's a lousy speaker? But I soon learned that her reputation as being a, a very good debate coach was well-earned. So that started my uh, debate career in high school. The second incident that caught my attention was the debate at Baylor. Ooh. And I'll just set this up really quickly that the man who dropped your team off drove away with all of your notes and supplies in the trunk. And there you are stranded about to go into a big debate. Could you tell that story? It was an elimination round. It was at Baylor University. And we were going to be debating against the Baylor team, the odds-on favorite to win that tournament. They were good debaters, and they were at home. And there is a home court advantage even in debate, not just in basketball or football. So here we walk in. We have nothing. All of our research material is in the trunk of Al Tiedlin's car. So the Baylor debate team, it's a two-man team each time, or two women, the Baylor debate team comes in, and we shake hands with them and say, uh, would you be kind enough to lend us a couple of tablets and a couple of pencils? Told them what had happened. Well, so they couldn't say no completely, but they certainly weren't going to help us any more than they had to. So they gave us one sheet of paper and one pencil. We tore the sheet of paper in half, so each of us... Uh, Bob Redman and I, my colleague, had half a sheet of paper. We broke the pencil in half, sharpened the two halves of the pencil. So we have a half a pencil and half a piece of paper, and here come the three judges, elimination rounds. They flip the coin. Are you going to be affirmative or negative? And lo and behold, we're lucky. We get to be negative. That's an, a huge advantage if you don't have any of your materials there. Because the negative's job is to find fault with the affirmative's plan. The affirmative points out the need for a change in the particular topic, and their plan will meet that need. So we're in the attack mode. So it may be that the judges are just impressed with our knowledge, with what we carried in our minds, maybe with our wit, Maybe they saw what had happened and how ungenerous the Baylor team was. But in any event, we won the debate three to nothing. And we go on to the other elimination rounds and win the tournament. So that was a story. There was even a rumor, probably started by Baylor, that we had orchestrated all of that just for effect, you know, to call attention to ourselves. But... In any event, the story made uh, our college uh, yearbook that year, and it went into the book, The History of Our University. That book was called um, 
Shrine of the Ozarks. And it was a story about our college, which was very small. When I started at Missouri State University, it had 1,577 students in the whole college, smaller in number than the high school from which I just graduated. It seemed like these are two dramatic incidents in your life about the power of the spoken word and how you can move people by lifting your eyes off of your notes and speaking right to them. And uh, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about how you relate to a jury. How do you do that? Do you use notes? I know that you've mentioned in your book, you memorize everybody's name before you start the trial. Could you talk a while about your approach to communicating with the jury? Probably the most or almost the most important part of a jury trial is the jury selection. And so, yes, in those days, we got the names of jurors ahead of time. So if John Brown was working at Kraft, I would go by his house. I would see what kind of a car he drove. I would see if there was a sign, a political sign, perhaps, in his yard. So when the jurors came into the courtroom, there might be 40, I would know all of their names. And uh, when their names would call, I would fix, okay, there's John Brown, he's sitting in that chair. When I started to um, question the uh, jurors, I could say, now you're, you're Mr. John Brown, aren't you? Yes, I am. And are you the John Brown that works out at Kraft? Oh, yeah, I am. Well, uh, I wonder, do you know Stan Baber? He, he works out at Kraft. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know him well. So you establish a little rapport before you get into the uh, substantive questions. And you hope to be friends of the jury. It carries over into the trial itself. You know, you hand uh, an exhibit in those days. You hand an exhibit to uh, a juror, and he or she looks at the exhibit, passes it down the line, it comes back up. And they hand it back to you and you say, thank you, Miss Smith. So you get to establish a rapport with the jury in the void hour, and then it's continued during the trial. And so you can look at them. Many times you will be able to say their names. You say, Miss Smith, can you see this exhibit I'm holding up here? I know you're in the back corner. Hopefully they're your jury and they trust you. You never, never, never try to mislead a juror or a jury. It will not work. And like in a football game, you win many cases you shouldn't win, perhaps, because of mistakes, uh, a fumble that the other side has made. So uh, the cases I tried were the cases that other lawyers didn't want or the cases that could not be settled because they were slam dunk cases for the defense. So I, I tried the tough cases and uh, was successful doing so. It sounds to me like you're trying to stay away from what many people might think of a lawyer's job as, is to advocate or argue, but it sounds like you, you've got a different angle on that. Yeah, you want to establish credibility. You want to establish an a emotional tie with them. One time I was trying a case up in Camden County. I knew that probably at least 10 on my jury would be farmers. So I wore this old, old suit and I wore it, uh, it was a, a five day trial and I wore it all five days. So my opponents would come in with a fresh suit and a fresh shirt every day. 
And these farmers would come in with overhauls, but uh, they could see me. And, you know, I was one of them. So you, you want to be one of the jury and whatever that jury is. As you mentioned in your book, you saw one of your prime jobs as to humanize your client. Could you talk a bit about that? There is a saying, I don't know if I originated it or not, but the jury will take from those they do not like and they will give to those they like. So you want the jury not to like the defendant or the defendant corporation and they must like your client. They have to like your client if you're gonna win a verdict. There is no excuse for the jury not liking your client. You have to uh, do whatever it takes to have a likable client. And if, if the client is a bad witness, it's your fault, it's not the witness's fault. You know, I've just learned over the years that it ends up being trust. You hear a lot about credibility, and I think there's a, a difference you know, credibility, if you're credible, people will, you know, lend you an ear. If they trust you, they'll follow you, is kind of what I've learned over the years. It's back to what the last episode, what I heard you say many, many years ago, protecting your reputation, being honest, being straightforward. It doesn't take much at all to lose trust or credibility of a jury. If you want to comment on that, if you could, Tom. Well, I think that's a great lesson. I think you enunciated it uh, very well. Tom, it seemed like in your early career, there were many moments where you obviously had the chops. You could have gone out east and joined a prestigious firm. You were determined to be a trial lawyer back in Springfield. Could you talk a little bit about your passion for doing what you ended up actually doing? Of course, my upbringing was that I would be sympathetic to the underdog. As I became, as a young man, interested in the law, I read, I read books about the famous trial lawyers. And I was especially enamored and in awe of um, Clarence Darrell. I wanted to be what he was, a champion for the underdog, fearless, resourceful. So, yeah, that, uh, that was my inspiration. Tom, let me, let me ask you this. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, it's about attorneys getting along, being civil and respectful to one another. And first... How would you compare it, you know, more recently to when you first started practicing? And then secondly, every once in a while we run into an attorney on the other side. It doesn't, thank, thank goodness it doesn't happen that often, but somebody that for every reason you just can't get along with them. You know, you can't trust what they say. First of all, can you compare how that has changed if it has from when you first started practicing to when you stopped practicing? And then also, how, how do you handle an opponent that you just can't get along with? Well, Lawyers I couldn't get along with, I just ignored. You know, in depositions, so I, they did what they tried to do, and I uh, wouldn't put up with nonsense. At the trial, they were their own worst enemies. The change of trust, if I view it right today, is so much different. Of course, when I was growing up, you left your keys in your automobile when you parked it. You didn't have locks on your doors, or we didn't. And uh, later on, if you had a lock on your door, you didn't use it. But you trusted people. And if a lawyer told you something, you could rely on it. In my community, I knew the lawyers here in Springfield and in the area in southwest Missouri. And they dared not break their word if they told you something. You could take it to the bank. So that's the profession as it should be practiced. 
Uh, now, as there are so many lawyers, and often they're not from your area, maybe they cut corners more than they used to. Some of the lawyers in my firm too often tell me about uh, lawyers who are less than they should be when it comes to ethics. You know, Tom, another point that you make in your book, it's right near the beginning. You talk about what is a trial lawyer and the difference between a trial lawyer and lawyers who aren't. Can you tell us about that, please? A trial lawyer is a person who has a passion to correct a wrong. There's some kind of a poem that goes something like this. Uh, you have no enemies, you say. Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. Those who mingle in the fray, the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you've done. You've smote no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never changed a wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. So the moral of that story, of that little poem, is do what's right. And if you're bucking the tide, that's part of your mission. But try to change a wrong to right and um, work hard doing it. Tom, let me take you to the point in time where you're approaching 65 years old. And my understanding is that you met with your firm and you talked about transitioning to retirement and uh, wrapping things up. And then something happened. So uh, can you tell us what happened? You're probably talking about the tobacco case. Yep. It was um, 1995. Jay Nixon, our attorney general, called me and said, um, you know, some of these attorney generals are talking about suing the tobacco industry. Should I get in it? Well, we had conversations like that over the years. And in 1997, there were bills in Congress to punish the tobacco companies. There was one bill to raise a pack of tobacco $1.50. There was one bill in Congress to fine the industry $7 billion a year if sales to underage smokers didn't decline each year. Some required tobacco to pay a fine of $8 billion a year for the next 25 years with increased adjustments for inflation. Tobacco, however, had the money, and it donated to the campaigns of congressmen and senators. And uh, money talks, and so nothing was passed those years. So now Nixon had a serious problem. It ended up that he hired me, one person, to represent the state of Missouri against this tobacco industry. So I had to uh, form a team, which I did. We had the Jim Bartimus firm to do medical part. We had Ken McLean's firm. Ken had represented Janet Sackman, the Chesterfield girl, and Burton, an injured smoker. He would do uh, most of the liability. The Ritter and Sandberg firms would uh, research the documents that were now available of the tobacco industry and find damning, damning statements there. One of them was... Uh, we don't smoke the shit. We just sell it. We reserve the right to smoke for the young, the poor, the black, and the stupid. Well, our lawsuit was in St. Louis. 53% of the population 
were black and the average income was $19,000. So they were poor. Our jury would be made up of a majority of poor black jurors. Could I inject one thing before you continue? A quote from your book. For 40 years, lawyers had sued tobacco companies without a victory. 800 losses without winning one cent in damages. Incredible, but true. And the major reason was that until Ken McLean had the Sackman case, he was the first to convince a jury that he had a right to see tobacco documents. So that opened up the devastating evidence that would ultimately bring uh, tobacco to its knees. But yes, 800 cases, 40 years, no victories. Tobacco had lawyers spending 100% of their time defending the cases. They had experts, intelligent, handsome, forceful experts, talking about the plaintiff's cancer is not from smoking, it's because he worked here or drank this kind of water or whatever. But they couldn't win. There were two plaintiff's verdicts in those 800 that were reversed on appeal. So 800 cases without a penny ever being paid. And that was the situation when I agreed to uh, represent the state of Missouri. Tell us more. How did it go? Well, there were three fights. One was to win the case. Jay Nixon, our attorney general, decided to be a part of the global settlement. So that was crushing to me. We could have had a jury verdict of $300 billion if the jury believed everything we were selling and bought everything we were selling. But politically, I can understand Jay needed to settle. Your result was more than $6 billion to the state of Missouri. Well, it was $6.7 billion in the first 25 years. Payments will continue as long as tobacco is in business. But to me, more important than the money were the 18 pages of equitable relief that we obtained in the settlement. No longer could tobacco advertise on TV or in magazines. A warning had to be placed on every pack of tobacco that was sold. They couldn't pass out cigarettes at a movie or in a grocery store. They couldn't give away T-shirts with Chesterfield's logo or the camel smoking uh, a cigarette on them. They couldn't uh, sponsor race car drivers. So the equitable relief is really what has paid off for us. I take a lot of pride in the tobacco case. We didn't destroy the tobacco industry, which is what I wanted to do, and I regret that. But we did cripple it badly. And ever since the settlement, more because of the equitable relief than the money judgment, Tobacco sales have gone down and down and down. So today, if you are a smoker, you know the risk. They no longer get away with the frank statement they once published or with the statements under oath. Eight CEOs of the tobacco companies testified that smoking is a habit, not an addiction, and it's a pleasant habit. So you can't get away with that anymore. If you smoke, you know what you're doing to your body. So I'm proud of what we came out doing. It's hard to understate or to overstate the, the amount of damage being done by the tobacco industry. You mentioned 
10,700 people died from tobacco use in Missouri in 1995 alone. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, incredible. It seems like a momentous act of faith on your behalf to jump into something like this. Why was I practicing law if it wasn't to be a part of something that could do this much good for this many people? I had a contingent fee contract to start with, with with the state of Missouri, but I would never be paid unless the General Assembly appropriated money to pay me. I knew that. I very likely was going to be working for free. I could have sued the state of Missouri. Peter Angelo sued the state of New Jersey, but I wasn't going to do that. I wouldn't do that to my reputation or to the reputation of my profession. So yeah, it was a leap of faith. And it was a bad deal, but I couldn't say no to it. I couldn't say no to Nixon's request that I represent Missouri. Your book then concludes with a visit to you by Tom Stewart. You want to talk a little oh, bit about that? Visit? Yeah, that was, a, that was a great day in my life. Tom came to my office and uh, said that they wanted to create an award. And it would be a trial attorney award. It would be given each year to a Missouri lawyer who displayed the qualities of a real trial lawyer, character, professionalism, ethics, success in court, and so on. They had thought about all the lawyers in the history of Missouri, lawyer who represented Dred Scott in his historic case, all the way through history, but they decided they wanted to name this award the Thomas G. Strong Trial Attorney Award. Wow. I kind of waited. Was there a catch to this? One time, the dean of the Missouri Law School wanted to name the Missouri School of Law the Thomas G. Strong School of Law, but he wanted money for it, big time money. And I wasn't in that kind of a game. But there was nothing about Tom Stewart uh, that wanted anything except my permission to name this award the Thomas G. Strong Trial Attorney Award. It was high praise indeed, one of the proudest uh, moments of my life, and still is. And congratulations to John Simon for being a recipient of that award. It's a great honor, Tom. Thank you. You continue to be a great example, Tom, for all of us. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. This was fantastic. Thank you for everything you've done. Oh, and thank you very much. I would recommend your book. To anyone who enjoyed this podcast, there's a whole lot more in the book. It's called Strong Advocate, The Life of a Trial Lawyer by Tom Strong. It was published in 2012. Awesome book, hard to put down. If anyone wants one, I will give them one free and autograph it. Just uh, contact me in my office. There you go. Wow. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful two-part podcast. Great conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. So thank you again for your time and visiting with us. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. All right. Well, this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beeth. This is John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law and tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view. And Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case.
Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.